One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. A failed invention that leaves a lasting impression. Edison must have flipped out when he saw what happened to his machine. An ill-fated voyage cloaked in mystery. It's as if these people just disappeared completely. And a mutant lizard that lurks in the night. There were the big red eyes of this creature coming toward him. Within the walls of great institutions lie secrets waiting to be revealed. These are the mysteries at the museum. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania played backdrop to the Oscar-winning film Rocky and the 72 steps he scaled in one of the movie's most memorable scenes lead directly to the Philadelphia Museum of Art. This museum is one of the largest in the United States and features paintings by renowned masters medieval armor, and Buddhist shrines. But as visitors ascend the great stairs, they are greeted by a vision of poised elegance and iconic stature. It is 13 feet high, cast in copper. It's balanced on one foot, shooting an arrow with the quiver drawn and perpetual readiness to shoot. As Hofstra professor Paula Yurabiru can attest, this prowling huntress oversaw one of the century's most scandalous affairs. It had everything that people are interested in. Sex, innocence being betrayed, and violence. To what horrific event did this statue bear witness? June 25th, 1906, Manhattan, New York. Hundreds of the city's elite gather on the rooftop at Madison Square Garden for the premiere of a new musical. It was, you know, dinner theater. It was out under the stars. The people would be dressed in their finest outfits. And in attendance is the garden's architect, Stanford White, a notorious playboy known for his wandering eye. He was somebody that men liked, women loved. He was very charismatic. And this venue was his crowning achievement. You could have boxing matches in the arena part. 
And then up on the roof garden was a sort of elite supper club. Perched atop a tower overlooking the restaurant garden stands a statue commissioned by White, the Roman goddess of the hunt and a symbol of virginity, Diana. Under the stars, as White settles in for the evening, the cast breaks into a musical number. They were singing a song, I Could Love a Million Girls, which was, you know, probably prophetic because White managed to have his cake and eat it too for a long time until it all exploded. Then a fidgety man emerges from the crowd and approaches White's table. Suddenly, he pulls out a pistol and shot him point blank in the head. White is instantly killed. And people started screaming and panicking and running. In the midst of the hysteria, the gunman surrenders to authorities. He is identified as Harry Thaw, a wealthy but volatile railroad heir with high society aspirations. The public is gripped by the brazen nature of the crime. And soon, the tabloid press begins searching for a motive. And when they talk to as many eyewitnesses as possible, everyone agreed that right after he shot White, Harry Thaw holds up the gun and he says, I did it because he ruined my wife. Thaw's wife happens to be the most celebrated model of her time, Evelyn Nesbitt. Women wanted to be her and men wanted to have her. Her picture was in all the magazines, Cosmopolitan, Harper's Bazaar, Vanity Fair. But long before she married Thaw, a 16-year-old Nesbitt became acquainted with Manhattan's social prince, Stanford White. The relationship between Evelyn and Stanford White started out innocently enough in that he was very paternal with her. He sort of was a patron for her. But the friendship evolved and White lured Evelyn to his love nest above the Gardens Theater, where Diana, the virgin huntress, stood watch over the city. She and White would climb into the cupola that was just below where the Diana was, and she would reach up and touch the heel. Then the hunter seduced his prey. The way Evelyn described it was she went into the room of virgin, but she did not come out one, and she at 16, became the mistress of this 49-year-old man who had a wife and family. But after a year, White tired of the romance and ended the affair. Evelyn was heartbroken until another suitor knocked at her door. Harry Thaw came along, and he promised that he would take care of her, and he had promised that he was going to forget all about the episode with White. But Thaw couldn't forget. The seemingly agitated and unstable heir kept pressing Evelyn for more details of her dalliance with Stanford White. Then he became obsessed over the idea of what White had done to her and what she had done with him. And he wanted to save this girl, but she had already been defiled by White. So all of this was playing into his already psychotic behaviors that he had. At what is dubbed the trial of the century, Thaw mounts an aggressive defense. He accuses White of preying on underage showgirls and justifies his crime as a heroic act in defense of American womanhood. But the prosecution alleges that Thaw's real motive was not the noble defense of women. They claim he killed White for a more selfish reason, vengeance. 
Harry wanted desperately to be part of New York society. So when he couldn't get into the various clubs, most of which White had either designed or was a member of, he blamed Stanford White, and that was it for Harry. He just decided that White was his mortal enemy. The jury determines that Thaw is not of sound mind, and he is acquitted on grounds of insanity and sent to an asylum. To many, Thaw is a hero for defending his wife's honor. But in the wake of the trial, the wealthy industrialist fails to support Evelyn financially. And following his release from state custody years later, Thaw divorces the very wife he claimed he was defending, calling back into question his true motives for murdering Stanford White. By 1925, the garden has gone out of vogue. The building is torn down and replaced with a neo-Gothic skyscraper. Evelyn Nesbitt never fully recovers from the events of that fateful summer night and spends her remaining years struggling with alcohol and drug addiction. And today, the statue of Diana, the Roman goddess of the hunt, is prominently on display at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, reminding us of the violence she witnessed and the sordid love triangle that once riveted the American public. Bishopville, South Carolina, is a quaint and quiet southern town nestled in the former heart of the state's cotton belt. And just off Main Street is an institution that celebrates the cultural history of the plant that was known as King, the South Carolina Cotton Museum. On view is the first modern mechanical cotton gin, a classic Cessna crop duster, and an oversized replica of the plant's only natural enemy, the boll weevil. But stashed deep in the museum's archives is a cryptic artifact that has nothing to do with cotton. It is a rectangular object, weighs around 26 pounds, and there are three of these identical ridges with a point coming up out of them. According to the museum's executive director, Jansen Cox, this cast left a lasting legacy on Bishopville. It tells of a tale that has terrified locals for centuries. What mysterious beast clawed its way into town and left in its wake this menacing mark? June 29, 1988, Bishopville, South Carolina. Just after 2 a.m., 17-year-old high school student Christopher Davis returns home and his parents are shocked by the look in his eyes. They reported that he was terrified. He was literally terrified. After gaining his composure, Chris recounts what happened on his horrifying drive home. While crossing a bridge, he suddenly got a flat, so he pulled over to change the tire. And while tightening the last nut, he was startled by the sound of fast-approaching footsteps. When he looked over his shoulder, he saw this large object ambling across the field. He jumped into his car and caught a terrifying glimpse in the mirror. There were the big red eyes of this human-like green lizard creature coming toward him. As he hit the accelerator, a violent thud shook the roof of his car. He saw the claws hanging over the front of the windshield as it was holding on. 
Chris frantically swerved, knocking the creature off his hood, narrowly escaping what could have been a gruesome fate. At the urging of his parents, Chris shares his harrowing encounter with Sheriff Liston Truesdale. I thought to myself, I can't believe what I'm hearing. Then, Truesdale subjects Chris to a polygraph test. I had to get to the truth, and he passed. So the sheriff digs deeper, returning to the scene of the incident. There, he discovers a set of mysterious footprints. Tracks were 14 inches long and about 7 inches wide. Hoping to discover what kind of creature left this mark, Truesdale makes a plaster cast of the print, the same one held in the custody of the South Carolina Cotton Museum. Then he sends it out to be examined by a biologist, but the animal that left the mark cannot be identified. Before long, police field reports about cars being ripped apart by razor-sharp teeth and piercing claws. I mean, you're not talking a little claw. You're talking about a dagger claw. Locals are whipped into a frenzy over the beast that seems to be terrorizing their town. The media dubs it the Lizard Man. So what is this mysterious beast? I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, it's some kind of monster. It's 1988, Bishopville, South Carolina. 17-year-old Christopher Davis has just had a terrifying run-in with a giant creature he describes as half man, half lizard. And soon his neighbors also report sightings of a scaly mutant the media dubs the Lizard Man. So what is this bizarre beast? Many begin to wonder if what Chris actually encountered that night was nothing more than a bear. But Christopher said it had green skin and three big claws. And only black bears, known to have five claws, live in South Carolina. Others contend that the lizard man sighting was nothing more than a prank. There is a theory that a couple country boys took their flip-flops and swim fins and created the footprints. Yet no human footprints were discovered in the vicinity. Others are convinced that the creature is real and that its presence in the swamp was recorded centuries ago. This is not a new story. The Indians talked about the lizard people that came to live with them. But many consider this nothing more than Native American legend. Over time, sightings of the lizard man drop off, and it seems the true nature of this elusive beast will remain a mystery. And today, this footprint cast at the South Carolina Cotton Museum serves as a reminder of the swamp-dwelling mutant creature that came to be known as the Lizard Man. Lockport, New York. Set on the historic Erie Canal, this town was named for a series of gates, or locks, that regulate the channel's water levels. And set back from the famous waterway sits the Niagara County Historical Society. This institution celebrates 175 years of the region's rich history and features a Victorian parlor room display, a turn-of-the-century doctor's office, and a replica of a 1930s kitchen. 
But there is one set of rather cryptic effects that tell a most bizarre and hair-raising tale. It's like a murky glass, and they have embossed lettering on them. They're about six inches tall, and they're very, very thick. These bottles may be empty now, but biographer Brandon Stickney asserts that they once contained a prized commodity. It was one of the most sought-after products in the world at the time. What liquid once filled these bottles? And what role did it play in the remarkable transformation of one eccentric family? Cambria, New York, 1865. Fletcher Sutherland lives on a farm with his wife, Mary, and seven daughters. But an interest in music sidetracks him from working his fields and earning an income. He was never really very good at farming. He really wanted to be on the stage. To distract her daughters from the family's abject poverty, Mary focuses on their appearance. Their mother, Mary, had really encouraged them to grow long hair because it made them look aristocratic. But then tragedy strikes when Mary contracts influenza and dies. Now Fletcher must find a means to save his family from utter ruin. So he comes up with an outrageous plan. He wound up getting an idea to have the sisters sing. Fletcher had heard of other traveling singing families, and he would try pushing his daughters out onto the stage and having them perform. After grueling preparations, the girls take to the stage. They sing church songs and Victorian ballads, but the act falls flat. They weren't amazing singers, certainly not. They probably weren't even amazing performers. However, Fletcher notices one aspect of his daughter's stage show that garners considerable attention. People were almost more interested in their hair than they were in the sisters' singing. To capitalize on their flowing locks, Fletcher revamps the girls' performance. Now dressed in white gowns with their hair tied back. The sisters perform songs until they reach the big finale. The girls could all turn around at the same time and have their hair let down. As their hair cascades to the floor, a combined length of 37 feet, the audience gasps in amazement. Fletcher renames their act a Niagara of Curls, after the famous waterfalls outside their hometown. And that's really when the Seven Sutherland Sisters' reputation took off. Word of the singing sisters with impossibly long hair spreads, and soon they're performing to sold-out houses of admiring fans who bombard them with questions. They wanted to know how they grew their hair and how they might be able to get the same thing. That's when Fletcher conceives of a product that truly changes the Sutherlands' fortunes: hair growth tonic. He fills bottles like these with his proprietary formula, and the product soon flies off the shelves. Customers from Los Angeles to Cuba, and all the way over to China, who bought this product made the Sutherland sisters millionaires practically overnight. But the newly minted stars don't stop at hair tonic. Fletcher and his daughters develop an entire line of products. Ranging from scalp cleaner and anti-dandruff potion to hair coloring, the money continues pouring in, 
and the once impoverished sisters use it to fuel an extravagant and eccentric lifestyle. They built a mansion from their fortune. They had golden horseshoes for their horses, which they didn't even ride. The girls all had minks with matching hats, and each one had one attendant to take care of their hair. The Sutherland sisters appear to be at the top of their game. But little do they know, their massive hair empire is about to come crashing down. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. It's the 1860s. The singing Sutherland sisters are sweeping the nation. Key to their success are their long flowing locks. So the sisters have marketed a hair growth tonic that's making them millions. But this empire of hair is about to be cut short. By the 1890s, Fletcher Sutherland, who had guided the meteoric rise of his daughters, is incapacitated by dementia. Then, Naomi Sutherland succumbs to cancer. That really dealt a serious blow to the seven Sutherland sisters because they were now six. Devastated by the loss, the sisters build an exorbitantly expensive mausoleum to honor Naomi. Then, in the wake of the tragedy, one of the sisters decides to strike out on her own. When Isabella broke off and started another hair tonic corporation. That was really the major break in the family that caused great arguments. It seems the once invincible hair empire is now vulnerable. But the crushing blow is dealt by the fickle force of fashion, the bob cut. The 
roaring 20s came in and women wanted short hair. And the product sales fell right off. By 1925, after years of profligate spending, their once vast fortune is all but gone. The once again impoverished Sutherlands retreat to their decaying mansion to die in obscurity. Today, these empty bottles of hair tonic on display at the Niagara County Historical Society remind us of a once legendary musical act, the extraordinary hair that inspired it, and the mixture of tragedy, excess, and greed that caused it to come crashing down. Just 20 minutes outside the metropolis of New York sits a quintessentially American town, West Orange, New Jersey. And just off its main street is a shrine to a truly American icon, the Thomas Edison National Historical Park. For 44 years, the brilliant inventor worked in this lab, developing revolutionary technologies like the phonograph, storage battery, and motion picture camera. But there is a much lesser-known creation on display that, according to archivist Leonard de Graff, left its mark in a truly unexpected way. It's five inches. It's made out of different kinds of metal. It's operated by a very small electric motor on top. This invention is considered one of Edison's biggest disappointments, yet it went on to radically transform the nation's complexion. It was a fluke, and it was a great fluke. What is this device, and what multi-billion dollar industry did it spawn? It's 1875, and Thomas Edison is working on a new invention. At the age of 28, he has already patented a stock ticker, a new version of the telegraph, and an electric voting machine. But now the inventor sees an opportunity to fundamentally alter the landscape of business. The way businesses in the 1870s and 1880s are organized and managed is changing. They're expanding in size, and the scope of their activities is increasing. And that's generating the need to create a lot of paperwork. Yet the process of creating duplicates is tedious and expensive. One way is to send your document to a printer and have it printed. Another way is to have a copyist make hand copies of the document. But Edison has an idea for a radical new machine that creates high-quality copies efficiently and cheaply, the electric pen. The contraption is a handheld device with a battery-powered motor, which drives a needle up and down just like a sewing machine. The user writes with a pen on a sheet of paper, but instead of leaving ink, the pen pokes holes in the paper, creating a stencil. A ink roller would be passed over it, and the holes would allow the ink to pass through to the other sheet, creating a, an exact copy of the document. Edison's intent was that it could make many copies from one stencil. With his design perfected, in 1876, Edison patents his creation and reveals it to the world. There is a lot of interest in the electric pen because there's a need for this type of technology. But once this promising device hits the market, Edison receives some devastating news. Customers are not impressed. While the pen is fast and precise, many find the device difficult to hold, and the battery leaks toxic liquid. 
But before Edison can make improvements, the marketplace shifts. By the late 1870s, the electric pen was supplanted by newer, simpler technologies. The typewriter, carbon paper, and then later the mimeograph machine. Sales of the electric pen plummet, and the device that once promised to dramatically improve business is now little more than a commercial disappointment. Yet Edison's failure is about to gain a surprising second life in the unlikeliest fashion. Edison must have flipped out when he saw what happened to his machine. It's 1878, New Jersey. Thomas Edison has invented a revolutionary device that creates duplicates of office documents. It's called the electric pen. But when it hits the shelves, business finds it unwieldy, and the inventor's brainchild is a commercial flop. Nevertheless, Edison's electric pen will leave an unexpected and permanent mark. New York City, the late 1800s. Tens of thousands of new immigrants are making this metropolis their home, and one of them is a businessman named Samuel O'Reilly. Samuel O'Reilly was an Irish immigrant and came to the United States in 1870. The Irishman settles into the Bowery, a neighborhood in Manhattan's bustling Lower East Side. Thomas Edison had some of his wares in a storefront on the Bowery, and. O'Reilly would pass by it every day and see the electric pen. O'Reilly has heard of the pen's speed and ability to form precise, even lines, and inspiration strikes. Instead of poking holes in paper, what if the electric pen could ink lines on human skin? Samuel O'Reilly was a hand-poked tattoo artist. Hand-poked tattoo artists use a sharpened piece of wood or metal to meticulously insert pigment into the skin. He knew immediately the motion going up and down was the same motion of tattooing by hand. And he says, "You know, I could take this machine and I could change things around, and this could work as a tattoo machine." O'Reilly begins streamlining the pen's design. He modifies the handle, making it easier to grip. And adds an ink needle. He knew that it would cut down time, increase his revenue, and give him a better product. And in 1891, he files a patent for a new device. He simply calls the tattoo machine, and quickly puts it to use. It made it possible to speed up a tattoo, to make them look cleaner, to make them last longer, to be more creative, to be more artistic. Word of his fast and efficient machine gets around, and soon O'Reilly is doing a brisk business of up to 130 tattoos a day. Over the years, O'Reilly trains dozens of apprentices in the art of the electric tattoo, and soon a fad once confined to soldiers and sailors begins to spread into the greater community. This was a revolutionary device. It really was. It put O'Reilly on the map, and it put tattooing on the map. Today, over 20 percent of American adults sport at least one tattoo, fueling what has become a 1.6 billion dollar industry. The machines that we use today are still built on the same theory of what it was years ago. 
And here at the Thomas Edison National Historical Park is the electric pen, a 100-year-old failed invention that spawned the modern tattoo industry. Richmond, Virginia. Tucked along the banks of the James River, this city once served as the capital of the Confederacy. And among the city's most important cultural attractions is an institution that's been preserving the state's legacy since 1832, the Virginia Historical Society. This neoclassical building boasts a collection of Virginia's most cherished artifacts, tracing its cultural transformation across 16,000 years of history. But deep in the building's archives is an object that tells of a daring and dramatic journey beyond state lines. It was created on paper, by press, in ink. It is 13 by 8 inches. According to Vice President for Collections, Lee Shepard, this lithograph illustrates the perilous price of freedom. It stands out as one of the most courageous and dangerous experiences in African-American history. What amazing voyage does this artwork depict? And what role did it play in one of the largest revolutionary movements in American history? August 1848, Richmond, Virginia. 33-year-old slave Henry Brown toils in a tobacco factory. He was a very hard worker, a very skilled worker there, and very successful. But Brown desperately craves one thing, freedom. He had saved a fair amount of money, and he was anticipating that at some point he would be able to buy his family out of slavery. But soon Brown learns some crushing news. His wife and children have been sold to a plantation further south. Brown is devastated. He had reached a point where he would say, well, all that I had to live for is now taken away from me, and I'm willing to do just about anything to get out of this situation. So Brown begins plotting an escape. Henry Brown would have known how dangerous personally it would have been if he were to be caught. Captured slaves face severe beatings and disfiguring abuse. And Brown is determined to find a way to avoid this fate. Then he is struck by a simple revelation. Uninspected cargo boxes are dropped off at shipping offices in Richmond every day and sent out across the country. So the slave concocts a simple but risky plan. Put myself in a box and ship myself to the north where there is freedom. To pull off this audacious plot, Brown seeks out the assistance of a white shoemaker named Samuel Alexander Smith. He was a northerner working in Richmond, and he appears to have had at least some feeling of affinity with the abolitionist movement. Brown offers the shoemaker $86 of saved wages to ship him to Pennsylvania and arrange for his arrival at the Anti-Slavery Society. And Smith agrees. Now Brown goes about constructing a box big enough to conceal his 5'8", 200-pound frame. When they were looking at the size of the box, they wanted to make something that was reasonably easy to handle and not call attention to itself. Once Brown is stuffed inside the container, 
he will be completely immobilized for the perilous 350-mile journey. The box could be dropped, it could fall into the water, someone could come along and decide, oh, what's in here, let me look. But Brown's desire for freedom is unwavering. And on March 23rd, 1849, with only a bladder of water and a few biscuits, Brown squeezes into the wooden crate. The top was nailed shut, so when he consigns himself to that box, he's in there until somebody lets him out. And he just hopes that that somebody that lets him out is a friendly somebody. Will this scheme actually work? Or will Brown's pine box become his coffin? It's 1849 in Richmond, Virginia. A slave named Henry Brown has hatched a wild plot to escape to freedom locked in a shipping box bound for Pennsylvania. But will he make it through this perilous journey alive? On March 23rd, Brown begins his harrowing journey north by railroad. And then the railroad goes to the Potomac River. But there his trip takes a treacherous turn. As the box is transferred onto a steamboat, it is carelessly flipped upside down. Brown is so tightly packed in that he's unable to move. And as blood rushes to his head, Brown begins to experience unbearable pain. He really feels like his eyes are going to burst. Then suddenly, he hears footsteps. Fortunately, somebody comes along and decides they want to sit on the box and turn it right side up. Finally, by the early hours of March 24th, the parcel arrives at the office of the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society. Now, only one question remains. Is Henry Brown still alive? And they go to work, breaking open the box, prying up the lid, and there is Henry Brown. After 27 hours of unimaginable torment, Brown is overcome. Henry Brown himself describes this as his resurrection. He was in slavery. He's gone through hell, and he's emerged from this a new free person. With his newfound freedom, Brown has visions of creating a large-scale theatrical production about the history of slavery. To finance this ambitious endeavor, he commissions a simple etching of his journey and sells reproductions of the image like this one in the collection of the Virginia Historical Society. With the money he raises, Brown tours the world for years, sharing the tale of his incredible plight. Then, in 1850, the Fugitive Slave Law is passed, legalizing the return of freed slaves to their masters. To ensure that he won't be captured, Brown moves to England. There, he achieves fame as an anti-slavery crusader. And today, more than a century later, this lithograph reminds us of Brown's unwavering courage in the pursuit of one of humankind's most fundamental rights, freedom. Stretching along the coast of North Carolina, Hatteras Island is dominated by idyllic expanses of unspoiled shoreline and the tallest lighthouse in the nation at 207 feet. But at the southern end of the island, the graveyard of the Atlantic Museum preserves a more merciless maritime history. 
one of unforgiving storms and hardworking sailors. But one prized artifact in the collection harkens back to one of the most enduring and confounding mysteries of the eastern seaboard. The artifact is roughly 40 to 50 pounds. It is widest part is about a foot in diameter, and uh, it's made out of bronze. According to museum director Joseph Schwarzer, this weathered ship's bell was taken from a vessel whose puzzling history has baffled mariners and historians for almost a century. This bell was mute witness to one of the great maritime mysteries of the century. On what ship did this bell once toll? And what strange and inexplicable fate did her unfortunate crew meet? Fall, 1920, Norfolk, Virginia. The crew of the schooner Carol A. Deering departs this busy port city for Rio de Janeiro with 11 crew members and a cargo hold full of coal. The ship is captained by experienced and exacting seaman Willis Warmel, who is joined by first mate Charles McClellan. This is Carol Deering's maiden voyage. It was a gorgeous vessel. She was 255 feet long, about 44 feet in the beam, and weighed 1,879 tons. It was a big vessel. After more than two months of smooth sailing, the crew reaches the port of Rio, where they unload their goods. Following a brief rest, they begin their journey home. Little do they know, they are sailing into infamy. January 31st, 1921, Cape Hatteras, North Carolina. Coast Guard surfman C.P. Brady is on patrol when he spots the Carol Deering with her sails at full mast, wedged into a sandbar not far from shore. Something doesn't seem right. There was no sign of anyone on board. When a Coast Guard team reaches the stranded vessel, their suspicions are confirmed. The ship is abandoned. There's no sign of the crew, no sign of any of the, of the lifeboats. The captain's possessions are all gone. It's as if these people just disappeared completely. As the Coast Guard searches the hauntingly empty ship, the mystery only deepens. They find red lanterns in the rigging, which means that the ship is out of control. They're in distress. The Coast Guard starts to wonder if the crew, unable to control the vessel, lowered the lifeboat and abandoned ship. And in heavy seas, something happened. The boat was capsized and all hands were lost. But no lifeboat wreckage or bodies wash up on shore, as authorities would expect. The investigators are baffled. What has happened to the men of the Carol Deering? It's January 1921 off Hatteras Island, North Carolina. The Coast Guard has just discovered the mystifying shipwreck of a schooner named the Carol Deering. Her sails are at full mast, and the lifeboat and all 11 of her men have seemingly vanished without a trace. So what happened to the crew of the Carol Deering? As the Coast Guard launches an investigation, a startling theory for the disappearance surfaces. Piracy. A man reports finding an alarming note in a bottle on a nearby beach. It says, Deering being pursued by vessel crew in handcuffs. Please notify Deering Company. The note seems to be written by the ship's engineer. But after the government analyzes the handwriting, 
they come to a confounding conclusion. And it later turns out that that's a forgery and that it's not real. Meanwhile, federal investigators come across more troubling evidence, but not of piracy. Retracing the ship's voyage, authorities find that during a stop in Barbados on the ship's return journey, Captain Warmel had reportedly expressed concern, not about high seas outlaws, but about the very men under his command. He made comments to other captains that he was very dissatisfied with the crew and he didn't trust them. But there were no specifics as to why. It seems Warmel even grew wary of his first mate, Charles McClellan, who was known to have a drinking problem. In fact, the second in command was heard making drunken threats against the captain while at port in Barbados. Could there have been bad blood between the first mate and the captain? Certainly. Could the first mate have become intoxicated and killed the captain? Possibly. Such an act would help explain an abandoned course map found by the Coast Guard on board the vessel. They found that there were notations on it by someone other than Wormel. The handwriting changed on the 23rd of January, after the boat left Barbados. That would lead credence to the idea that something had happened to the captain. And some speculate that if the crew was complicit in an attack on the captain, they may have feared the repercussions of this treasonous act. What would their instinct be? Their instinct would be to throw the body overboard, get rid of his stuff, get in a lifeboat and disappear. But with no physical evidence to support this theory and no sign of the sailors, the investigation into the disappearance of the men of the Carol Deering grinds to a halt. They finally closed the files a year later and just said, whereabouts of the crew unknown, reasons for loss unknown. It really is an unsolved mystery. After all salvageable equipment, including this bell, is removed, the shipwreck is dynamited, its pieces slowly covered by the sands of the Outer Bank. And at the graveyard of the Atlantic Museum, this bell keeps its untold secret about the mysterious missing sailors of the Carol Deering. From a cold-hearted murder to a death-defying escape, a long hair craze to a missing crew of sailors. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the mysteries at the museum. <laughs>